All right, let's uh, pray before we get into our psalm. Father, we are thirsty for you. If you do not show us your face and help us to engage with you in relationship and in worship, then we will not be able to understand this psalm or any of the scriptures, and this sermon will be for nothing. Father, if you do not let the light of your face shine on us, we will have to continue waiting and longing for your presence. Please fulfill the prophecy, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We are waiting expectantly, confident from the scripture that you would be delighted to bless us with more of yourself. Amen. Psalm 84, being near God. Last Sunday morning, in a sermon entitled, Me, Myself, and My Pride, we talked about two things that would keep us from entering the presence of God during this current outpouring of the Holy Spirit. One of them is my heart, and one of them is my tongue. We said that the heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17, 9, which means that there is nothing in the whole world that lies like my heart lies to me. And that chiefly means that I flatter myself, like by being all self-righteous, and I criticize others. Between the pride of my heart, which has deceived me, making me think I don't really need God, and the damage I have done to those I love by tearing them down with my own tongue, both my heart and my tongue would keep me from fellowship with God and with each of you. So let's not be deceived like Eve. I will reap what I sow. Say it with me. I will reap what I sow. Say it again. I will reap what I sow. Whatever I plant, that's what will grow, and that's what I will have to eat. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs 18:21, And those who love it will eat its fruits. That means, like, when I just got to get in the last word. I got to get my satisfaction, you know, stuff like that. I just got to get in that jab. I just got to be right etc. I have to verbalize the criticism of others that's in my heart. That's death, and that means I will eat that. That's coming back to me. I will reap what I sow. So we have talked about two things that will keep us from enjoying God. But the point is, God is gracious, and he's here to bless us, that we may enjoy him. So let's get into Psalm 84, a psalm about enjoying the presence of God. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. 
Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let me start off by saying that if God is not in heaven, I don't want to be there. Oftentimes we are longing for something we don't have and something that is not God. We live in if-only land in Greg's words. If only I had this, or if only that person were different, or if only, but it says in Hebrews, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And that's what this psalm is about remembering what it was like in God's presence during those awesome worship meetings and scripture readings and eating and drinking as a community in the presence of the Lord, remembering that and missing it, longing for him, eager to go again. I think there's uh, some feedback in the mic. What do I need to do to fix that? Is it kind of ringing? All right. Psalm 84, 1. Thank you. How lovely is your dwelling place. What is that talking about? Where is that? Is that, is that talking about heaven? No. It's talking about the temple that used to be in the city Jerusalem in ancient Israel. But it foreshadows the presence of God among his people around the world. But all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, when the Israelites were still in the wilderness in between Egypt and Israel, God told them, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your offerings dot, 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 
And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So God told them they had to go to this place where a house would be for his name. And then God ordained some holidays, including Passover holiday feast, Pentecost feast, and the Feast of Tabernacles. For each of these holidays, the ancient Israelites living near Jerusalem would take off work, get on the road, and actually walk to Jerusalem. That's what it's talking about in this psalm. Uh, Blessed are those in whose hearts in whose heart are the highways to Zion. They're talking about getting on the road and going to the temple, going to celebrate in the presence of God. These holidays became to them like Thanksgiving and Christmas are to us, but they weren't one-day holidays. They were a week long or more. So this psalm, Psalm 84, is written for people to sing while they're longing to go to the temple for the holidays and be near God again. And that's what we are longing for too. But there is no more temple. So how is this psalm relevant to us today? We have to ask again, where is the dwelling place of God since that temple was destroyed? To answer that, we had best go back to before there was a temple. Back in the book of Numbers, chapter 2, there's no temple for God, but there is a tent for God. Numbers chapter 2 gives a 34-verse long, you don't have to turn there, gives a 34-verse long detailed explanation of exactly how the Israelites were to camp around the tabernacle, as it was called. 34 verses. Why so verbose, Moses? (laughs) So... They had to set it up like this. There are these, the, the whole country was in uh, was 12 clans or 12 tribes because Jacob had 12 sons and they each became like the heads of clans, right? So God told them these particular three tribes have to set up their camp. This is like a map. You're looking down from above. This is a big map of somewhere out in the wilderness, middle of nowhere, and they got to camp in exactly this way. First, they have to like travel in a certain order, and then when it's time to stop, when the cloud and the pillar of fire of the glory and presence of God stops, that's where they're supposed to stop and set up camp, like this. First, they set up the, the tabernacle around it, and they camp all around it. Well, I've got to turn our map up here. So, so you've got this tribe had to camp here, This tribe had to camp next to it here, and this tribe here, all on the north side of the tabernacle, right? And then, let's see, my west is your east. So then on the west side of the tabernacle, this tribe, this tribe, and this tribe had to camp here. In the meantime, the Levites, they're setting up the tent, they're setting up this little uh, kind of curtain thing around it, and they're setting up the altar. They're setting up this big like wash basin for the ceremonial washing. And then this tribe, this tribe, and this tribe had to camp on the south, and this tribe, this tribe, and this tribe had to camp on the east. What? Is that, it, that's taking up a lot of space in the Bible to tell us all that. So what's, what's the point of all that? Can you see it? The point is that God is in the middle of his people. His people are here, 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 here. And the point isn't that they're around him. The point is that he is among them. God is in the midst of them. 
This gives us a clue to what God had in his heart from long ago, from back when he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. For many centuries, from back in the days of the tabernacle and in the days of the temples, there were three temples over the years, all the way up until the Son of God was born into the world. The Lord did, indeed, specially meet with his people there in the temple. But all of that was destined to change when, during the crucifixion of, the Christ, of Christ for sinners, the big, thick veil in the temple that separated the holiest place where God's presence sort of lived or dwelt or where God made his habitation, the veil of the temple was torn in two, and soon the Holy Spirit began to be poured out on all Christians. And that pouring out of the Holy Spirit is still happening and increasing today as Christians around the world are baptized and filled and refilled with the indwelling Holy Spirit who has come to live in our hearts through faith. So the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man. Where's the house we would build for God, asks one of the prophets. Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. All of these things were fulfilled in the words of Revelation 21.3, which were fulfilled at the, at the coming of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. One of the New Testament writers says, and you are that temple. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you? So Father, we pray that as we read this psalm, we may be strengthened with power in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, so that we, being rooted and grounded in your love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how high and long and wide and deep is the love of God that is experienced in your presence. In Christ, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Not feeling the presence of God when you worship lately? Let's start, as this psalmist starts, with some longing, some fasting and praying, some confession and repentance of sin, so that times of refreshing may come from the Holy Spirit. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh, that means my whole being, my heart and my, my inside and my outside, sing for joy to the living God. And then uh, the writer of this song in verse 3 kind of makes a little bit of a joke, I think. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts. Like, he's like writing this poem, and he's like, 
even birds like live up under the eaves of the temple building. Like, I gotta get close to you. Like, I'm like jealous of these birds. My king and my God. When you read that verse and he says, O Lord of hosts, my king and my God. Can you see how personal and deep and affectionate his, his words are? He knows the Lord. He has known the Lord to a degree of intimacy and fellowship and personal relationship that, that is deeper than what many Christians normally experience. But we're supposed to be longing for that and praying for that. He will take us there. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. When uh, King David's son, King, who became King Solomon, uh, built the temple, he had like these extra rooms, like kind of built around it. And I believe there were rooms for the people who were on the worship team, the, 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 song, the song leaders and the musicians to actually live there. And uh, I think that's what this is talking about. The writer of this, this poem, this song, this psalm, is saying like, man, I wish I were on the worship team. Like, I wish I didn't even have to go home. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Blessed, a word that's used like uh, three or four times here, at least three times in the psalm. Blessed doesn't just mean happy. Blessed means like, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy are those who experience God's presence, those in whose heart are the highways to Zion. What's Zion? Where's Zion? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah, and even more specifically, like Jerusalem's built up in the hills, it's built up in the mountains, and a nickname for the mountain on which the city and the temple were built is Mount Zion. Remember, Jesus said, you're a city set on a hill. So in the words of uh, the book of Revelation, you're the new Jerusalem. Like, the new Jerusalem isn't a bunch of buildings. It's a bunch of people that live together in community, in relationship, and God is in our midst and we're seeking the presence of the Lord and enjoying him together. And then, verse six, he says, as they go through the valley of Baca, I thought we were in the presence of God. I thought we were there. The Valley of Baca is a terrible place. It is that time in your life of dryness. It is a place of weeping and thirstiness. What got us through those seasons of weeping and tears in our lives? What carried us through the nights of sorrow until joy came in the morning? Was it not the presence of the Lord? As they go through the valley of Baca, because God doesn't leave us there. David writes in Psalm 23, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, which we usually read as, even though I'm in the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death, but we should read it, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Who's there with me? For you are with me. 
as they go through the Valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. Imagine this like super dry wilderness somewhere and there's this desert road going through it to Jerusalem and, and people got to go through that to get to Zion, to get to the temple, to get to the presence and place where God meets with us. So other people have been on this road before us and many saints have been through the Valley of Baca, figuratively speaking, before us and they have left for us springs in the desert. And as we go through it, as the Lord doesn't wait out there in the distance in the temple, the Lord comes out to us, especially, most especially, as we are going through the Valley of Baca. And there, he is like a spring of water welling up within us to eternal life. It's like rivers of living water. And as he fellowships with us in our darkest and most tragic and painful times and most lonely times, our driest season, it is there that, that we find that in him we thirst no more. And he overflows and now there's like a spring of water in the wilderness, not just for us to drink, but for us to water and refresh others. As it says, he who waters others will himself be watered. They go, the early rain also covers it with pools. That's probably talking about the third of those feasts we mentioned, uh, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, which is actually a whole feast, this whole like week-long holiday, I think it was eight days, um, where uh, that celebrates uh, the people living in like, like tents in the wilderness and God coming and living in a tent in their midst with them. Like, like he didn't wait until he could live in this grand house. God who is ultimately worthy and much more worthy of any like golden or pearled or jeweled or marble building we could, church building we could build for him. He came to the people in like, when there was like nothing like they had not like made a, 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 a real nice place for them. You know, they were like the complainers in the wilderness. But that's where God came to them and tabernacled among them. And that's what's in God's heart towards us, especially when we screw up. Praise God. He is the God of mercy. As it says, blessed are all who wait for him. They go from, oh, the, the early rain, uh, that's probably like the rain before the harvest because the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles was in the fall. And this is saying like, there's foreshadowing of the, the winter rains that are gonna satisfy the thirsty ground. There are early rains coming and that's something that we're asking God for and we're beginning to experience in our congregation now. These early rains and signs of another move of God and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Press in, church. They go from strength to strength. But this is talking about going through the Valley of Baca. So really, it's in my times of greatest weakness that he shows himself strong on behalf, on my behalf. As it says, the eyes of the Lord range throughout, to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are fully committed to him. 
and nobody gets left behind. Each one appears before God in Zion. It's God who gathers his people. It's not us who had the strength to get through it. It's God who brought us and sustained us and watered us and strengthened us and gathered us. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold, our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Who's that? Jesus? Who's that? The Son of God. Son of God? Who's that? Church? Who's that? There's somebody, it's a guy, He's, he wears a crown, it's the king. So the psalmist is pausing in the middle of his prayer to pray for their like, leader, their president, their king, right? He's praying that God would, um, would pay attention to the king who sits on the throne, where? In Jerusalem, that's where the temple is. The saying, as the king goes, so goes the country. Um, the person who's writing this gets that, and he's praying, God, like, have mercy on our king, AKA, have mercy on our whole country. Like, like, look at the person who's like a shield to us, because the king was the defender and protector of the country. If the king just sits there and like, like sips on wine and you know, enjoys like, his entertainment and stuff, like, what's gonna happen when enemy armies invade? The enemy armies invade. And so he's praying, make him like a strong shield to us. Look on the face of your anointed, because they would anoint kings with oil. They'd take this like horn, you know, it was like a cup, and they'd put oil in it, like olive oil, and then go and they'd have the, this big ceremony, and there would be the, the young guy who was gonna get crowned king over the next country. This is the inauguration ceremony, and they'd pour a horn of oil on his head, and like run down his clothes and stuff, and test that probably sounds real gross, but that was like a, that was the ceremony, and it was, and it was like, you know, nice smelling oil and stuff, probably had perfume in it, I guess. So, so he's saying, look on the face of your anointed. He's, he's praying that the whole country would get in on this because God protects their nation and God creates a sanctuary for Christians to live and worship in peace and safety. And then he goes on to the best verse of the psalm. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I was reading this to Daniel last week. And he was like, Daddy, a day in your, his courts is not better than a thousand elsewhere. Like, because Daniel and I go on adventures and we have some pretty good times. And I was like, no, Daniel, one day you will experience the presence of God so wonderfully that you will be overcome and filled with joy and peace, and you'll know that you need no righteousness of your own because his righteousness is enough. And you will miss those days when you're not going through them when you're in the Valley of Baca, and you will long for them. This guy had experienced the presence of God like we want to be on a regular basis. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God then dwell in the tents of wickedness. It's like in Psalm 63 when 
the writer of that psalm says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. So to us, like, what kinds of places have doorkeepers? Really nice hotels. Like, I wouldn't mind being a doorkeeper in like a really nice hotel. It'd probably be a raise. <laughs> it's not a very honorable position here. Um, who holds the door for the doorkeeper? Nobody. This is bottom rung. Like, this is like my, my old job cleaning toilets and picking up cigarette butts and half-empty beer cans and sweeping parking lots. It was like, it's like total entry level, like, um, and he's saying, I would take any job in the world just to get close to this outpouring of the Spirit, this presence of God on earth. I would do anything. Like, I don't care if it's like a little bit ignoble or I'm not getting respect. Like the people who come in and do all the cleaning in the, in the temple, like the doorkeeper holds the door for them. There's, no, there's nobody who holds the door for the doorkeeper. And he's saying, I don't care. I don't need respect. I will serve. I will do whatever it takes just to be close to God. And in fact, Christ came not to be served, but to serve. Amen. So really, it is quite a dignified position. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Yes. The tents of wickedness. What do you think is in the tents of wickedness? So you might think like house versus tents. Tents, that's not a very nice place. No, it was a nice place. These are like tribes, and in that part of the world, they would, they would set up like big, beautiful, permanent tents, and they would have like glorious furnishings and like rich and fine things inside. So it's not like house versus tent. It's like this is where the wicked gather. This is where the money flows. This is where, this is where there is pleasure. This is where there's women and wine, as they say. And there's, there's more than enough wine to make you drunk as often as you want. They don't have any rules. They got respect. They have lives of ease. They do whatever they please. They have it all for a little while. And all of us have lived there. And like Paul says, the time that has passed suffices. The time that it passed is enough for living as the Gentiles do in these things. What do we do when we are tempted with, uh, with things like money and the pride of life and sexual temptation? How do we overcome these strong temptations that are all yours in the tents of wickedness? God is enough. You who are beginning to confess that you have been self-satisfied and self-sufficient, God is enough. Saints, when we are tempted, God is enough. And that is how we overcome these temptations. 
God doesn't come down to us. To, God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. If you have been dwelling in the tents of wickedness and felt real comfortable there, because it is comfortable there for a while, God is enough. Isaiah 55. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Today, when I am tempted, God is enough for me. There is nothing and no one that can or has or ever will satisfy me like God has been my satisfaction. I will remember that, and that will give me strength when the flap of the tent of wickedness is open and I'm walking past. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. What does it mean the Lord God is a sun? Who has uh, lived like at the equator or traveled there? Raise your hand if you've been like pretty close to the equator. We've got a Sam. We've got an Elijah. Peru, Kenya. We've got a Liz. I don't know where you've been. So, so, so what's it like? Well, I'll tell you what it's like at latitude uh, 62 degrees north in the middle of Alaska where, uh, where I had lived on a bright, sunny day. It's not very impressive. <laughs> so here's the earth. Here's the equator. Here's the, the thing that goes at the poles. What do you, what do you call it? Uh, help me out here. The axis. So the earth's a little rotated. Here's like the north, like Alaska. The sun's coming in from over here from 93 million miles away, and the sunlight up here is like all spread out over that long surface of the earth. Here it's like hitting it straight on. So if you have this many rays of sunlight up there, one lands here, one lands here, one lands here, and one lands here. The days might be long during the summer, uh, but the sunlight's real, real thin threadbare. On the equator, all those rays hit like right here. Uh, is Josiah here? Josiah, what happens if you're like high in the Andes and you're not wearing uh, like an umbrella? <laughs> you get sunburned in like how many minutes? Pretty quickly, pretty quickly like, like five, five minutes. Lourdes, I assume you've been pretty high up in the mountains. I don't think you live too far up, but like how long does it take to get sunburned, especially if you've got real pale, <laughs> pale clothing like me here? Like minutes, right? Like, there are places where you can go on the equator, especially when you're up in the mountains, where the sun is so intense, there's, uh, it's both direct and there's not a lot of atmosphere to filter it out if you get high up enough. Um, that sun is so strong and powerful and impressive that it can, like, burn your skin in minutes. Like, the closer you get to the equator, the more impressive the sun is because you, you can feel its heat and you can see its light more, more in a more concentrated way. When the psalmist says, the Lord God is a sun, this is a guy who lives pretty close to the equator, closer than we do here in Ohio. And he knows how powerful and he knows the heat of the sun. 
So saying God is intense and powerful and more than enough for everything we need, both to keep us warm and to grow crops, etc. Um, he is also our shield. He just called the king their shield, but he prayed that God would make the shield a real shield. Like he said, the king is our, you know, kind of the protector of our country. You know, he's got, you've got to tell the armies to go guard the borders, but it's God who tells the king, who guides the heart of the king, you know, one way or the other. It's God who shields his country. Like when he appeared to Abraham and he said, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Amen. The Lord God is a sun and shield. If you've ever been in a hand-to-hand battle, okay, imagine you're a soldier. Imagine you're a foot soldier. You're not an archer. An archer. You're, you're, you're one of the country's warriors. And when you go into battle, your commanders are up there with the archers, and you go down, and you've got this, this like thing that's longer than a kitchen knife, and that's the only thing in between you and this fierce guy who's been training for years, and he wants nothing more than to kill you, and he might. And maybe you can like parry a little bit, kind of knock his sword out of the way for one second, but you can't like parry very much if you know anything about sword fighting. That's not how like sword fights are won. When you see in sword fights when they're, when they're fencing and they go clink, 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 and they go back all over through this room and all over down that hill and up this part of the castle, that's not actually how sword fights work. Sword fights are won in like seconds. Watch the Olympic fencing. These are the best people in the world at block, they don't have shields. These guys are the best, guys and ladies are the best people in the whole world at knocking somebody's little foil, their little sword out of the way so that they can get the jab in. And how many times does that happen in an Olympic fencing match? Has anybody seen one? Seconds? That's a long one. Normally it's like, they, they have like a little ding, ding. One of them got the, like the, the strike in. And that's like two hits later. What you need when you're, when you're this close to somebody who is, you know, pretty dang fierce and wants to kill you, you need a shield. And your shield is your life because some big strong guy is hammering on it with like literally a hammer or, or a sword or thrusting this big heavy sharp metal pointed spear in it and either you dodge it, great, or you, you kind of get super scared and, and, the, and it lands on your shield, thud, and it's gonna hurt your arm. Like, these blows land hard. You need a shield. So the psalmist is praying, like, you are my shield. Satan is beating up on me. Like, it's physical enemies, but the enemy is also my heart, and my tongue would tear others down and tear myself down and ruin me and keep me from enjoying the presence of God. You defend me from Satan's accusations all day long. You defend me from the accusations of others. You defend me from my own mistakes. The Lord God is a sun and shield. I can't tell you how many times I've had the Lord kind of guard my tongue when when I, I was getting ready to say something I was going to regret. Spend time in the presence of the Lord, and that's the answer to the strife caused by my tongue. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. The favor that the Lord bestows is his affection and approval. 
even when people condemn you, even when you don't got respect. You can't buy that and you can't earn that. It's a gift. It gives the kind of confidence whereby I can be surrounded by people who are judging me and I can stand up straight and tall because God does not condemn me. When father and mother forsake me, I can rest assured that my heavenly father is greater than all and he has sanctified me. When my heart condemns me, I know that God is greater than our hearts and his blood was enough for all of my sin. It's the confidence that even though I fell into that sin that I hate again, he will hold me fast. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He does not withhold himself from those who seek him. Seek him with all your heart and you will find him from those who walk uprightly. Does that mean that God only shows himself to those who don't fall into sin? No. It means that those who are quite conscious of their total inability to not sin except for the power of the presence of the risen Christ living in them, makes them want to please him. It is these to whom the Lord reveals himself. For our God is no respecter of persons of rank and reputation. But he is the kind of father who takes special interest in the weak, the poor and the needy, and in those who are suffering at the hand of another. Cry out to God, and call upon his name. Purify yourself and sanctify your day for seeking him and repenting of sin. Repent so that times of refreshing may come. Let your mouth be closed and your racing thoughts be still. Shut down your cell phone and seek him in silence and with your full attention, fixing your eyes on Jesus. You know when you're near God because it makes you want to confess sin and repent of things that either you were blind to or your heart was calloused about them. In fact, having a hard and calloused heart is what usually makes us blind to some big sins. But the solution is the presence of God. It is Jesus who opens blind eyes. And when you're in the presence of God, when you're near God, he shines light on the dark places in you and you openly confess secret sin and that is the doorway through which you must walk to meet God. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. That means, oh, how happy are those who trust in God to experience his presence. Let's pray. Well, Father, we cannot do any of these things, nor can we make ourselves hungry and thirsty for you. So we pray that you would come and draw near to us and draw us near to you and put in our hearts to, um, to confess sin and repent of anything that would like to hold us back and keep us from enjoying you. We pray that everybody in this congregation would, would receive the fulfillment of what you said when you said, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and life to the full and life more abundantly. In Jesus' name, amen.